0: Philippians chapter 1, and again, I'll begin reading with the last phrase of verse 18 and continue on. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we are in verse 20, and I want to uh, basically focus on the phrase, Christ will be honored. So verse 20 says, as it is my eager expectation, and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So again, remember, he is in prison. Uh, He's writing this letter to encourage the Philippians. He has a very uh, strong a relationship with these believers he was instrumental obviously in helping to to start the church and uh, had had first-hand knowledge with many of these individuals they were very concerned about his well-being and what was going on Uh, they had been praying for him for a long time he wanted them to know that things were going really well Uh, and when he said that it didn't mean that he was being treated well by the guards but i'm not saying they didn't treat him well but in his eye in his mind's eye Things were going well because the gospel was being advanced. And that was just—that all he cared about. He, in a sense, had a one-track mind. And so when he says this, Christ would be honored in my body. Paul was determined not to be dishonored in anything or by anyone. In other words, he's looking at his life as a whole, and he wants to make sure, he's making this statement, that he wants there to be nothing about his behavior, his attitude, the way he thinks, anything that he does. He wants to make sure that there's nothing in his life that would dishonor the Lord. He recognizes that he not only belongs to the Lord, he represents the Lord. And he not only represents the Lord because he's he's an apostle, though he he is and he does, but that is true for all believers. All of us represent Christ. Uh, And so this should be really our desire as well. So the idea here is that he wants to make sure he demonstrates right actions Uh, I think I gave you a phrase last time we were closing that right actions are not determined by right environment, but by right thinking. So again, we, we need to make sure we get away from the idea that our circumstances do not determine how we behave. So that includes then not just what's going on around us physically, like things are going well at work, things are going well at home, things are not going well at work, so I'm irritable, things are not going well at home, so I'm irritable that that is that's wrong thinking if things are not going well in those places and you're irritable another way to say that is that's your choice to be irritable okay you are you may not be thinking it that way but it is in your power to decide how you're going to respond now apart from Christ we are weak and we still have a natural tendency to follow the old sin nature, because the flesh is weak. So as we are being renewed in our minds and in our hearts, the way we think, the way we feel, as that's taking place, then other changes will happen. And one of those is, is that uh, we then begin to gain control over our circumstances. And what I mean by that is that, it's not that I have the power to change my circumstances, but I have the power to change how I react to my circumstances or how I act in the midst of my circumstances. Now, my circumstances not only include then what's going on at home, what's going on at work, and you know the various pressures that we feel, but it's also what's going on internally. right? So you may feel sick. right? A lot of us, you, whether, whether you have the flu or whatever it happens to be, when the, when what we call the when the weather gets us down, um, we may act irritable or cranky. But again, it's not because you don't act that way because you have a cold. You don't act that way because you have the flu. You act that way because of what's inside of you. There's tons of people who get that. They don't act that way. And that's even non-believers. So as believers, we just have to kind of take a step back and recognize that Christ is to make a complete difference in every aspect of my life. So this is how I want you to think about it. So yes, it is an expectation that God has of how we are to live. Yes, that's true. It is also in a sense a command that we live that way but at the same time it should also be the natural outworking of the relationship we have with christ right, so it's all of those things combined so it's not like you're just in a sense on the outside and you are antagonistic to whatever god says and he's giving you commands anyway that's what you were as a non-believer as a believer it's cha- it changes so think of it in this way uh, I think it's the best illustration for a lot of things that's supposed to happen in the Christian life. When two people fall in love or, in the, or when they get married, when they're together for several years, often what will happen is one or both of them will talk about how they are now a different person than they were before. That, they, uh, that there's been changes in their life. Now, the changes in their life come in several different ways. Number one you actually work on changing your life because you're now married. You now think differently. You know, I know that when I get off of work, I need to go home. My wife is there. She's expecting me to we live together now. We, we have this relationship. There's an expectation. I don't just decide to go off and do whatever I want and not bother to tell her. It's not that I'm asking permission, but we have a new life together. There's an expectation that we're going to communicate. All right, so we make those kinds of choices. All right? Along with that, though, the uh, personality of this other person will begin, in a sense, to rub off on us. It doesn't mean that we become just like them, because we don't become just like them. But there are certain maybe attitudes they have, approaches to life, that begin to affect the way we approach life. And so we will become different. You know, there's lots of people who say things like, well, I used to be really impatient but I've learned through my spouse, you know, through going through life together, that person is always, let's say, calm, whatever. And so that's affected us. We've seen that. We learned from that. We didn't say, I am now going to change because my spouse is always patient. You don't do that, but you become more patient. You may not become as patient as them, but you're more patient now than you were before. Maybe you're less angry. Or on the negative side, maybe you're more angry. Because your spouse is angry and they're always getting angry and now you're getting angry. <laughs> so, you know, so it could be a positive or a negative thing. But what happens is we just naturally change. Both people will there'll be some changes. This is all there is to it. All right. So this relationship we have with Christ, the same kind of thing is supposed to happen and will happen. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us and dwells in us. And interacts with the Word of God, which again, that's why it's important that we read the Bible, or at least we're listening to the Bible. Usually it's good to be doing both kinds of things, studying the Bible. And the idea is that the the Spirit of God interacts with the Word of God in that way to affect changes in us. So even when when we talk about becoming different, it's not just overcoming sin and sinful tendencies, though that's included. But it's also in our demeanor, in our attitude. It's also in the way we feel about other people. In other words, what we, what, the way we respond to certain, ways, certain, certain circumstances spontaneously reveals what we're really like on the inside. But as the inside of us changes, then the way we respond spontaneously now becomes different. We don't have to think about it. So back to you becoming more patient because your spouse is. So what happens is you spontaneously begin to act more patient. You don't. You don't think. You don't stop and say, "Well, now if this was last year, I would have flown off the handle." But because of my wife, I am now going to wait ten minutes. Okay, you're not. That, that's not. you You don't think that way. But what will happen is, is you may notice. Others may notice. You know, I notice that you don't get as angry as quickly as before, or you're not as irritable as quickly as you before. That would that would be that would be great news. Hopefully. Uh, sometimes we get offended, like, what do you mean I was irritable, or I was irritable? You know, we get irritable again. But the idea is that we should see that as progress. That's a good thing. We want to see that. So when it comes to this idea that right actions uh, are not determined by right environment, I want us to understand that, again, this is not just only a command, and we now have to go to this immense struggle. It is hard, but God is giving us great help. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so it's it's also a normal, natural expectation that God has. So we are both striving to be this way, as well as this is the working of God in me to make me that way, not dependent on my striving. I hope that makes sense because right? Sometimes we try a lot harder than others, but God still, because God said he's going to complete the work in us that he began. He's going to do that. And so we want to make sure that we recognize that. But I want us to see the full spectrum, I guess, of, our, of this relationship that we have with God so that we don't allow ourselves to boil it down to some form of legalism where it's just about certain rules and keeping rules. It's, it's not that. It's, it has to be more than that. Uh, Imagine if I'm talking to a married couple uh, and, um, well, I'll just talk about Ron because he's in the front. So if I'm talking to Ron and I say, Ron, in all your years of marriage, have you been faithful to, to your wife? Now, I know he's a Christian. And if he says to me, well, of course, I've been commanded to be faithful. Now, that's a true statement, right? But that's not exactly the answer I would be looking for. I'm glad he's been faithful. What I want to hear is something to that. It doesn't have to be exactly what I'm thinking, but the idea would be, well, of course I've been faithful. I love her. And he may add to that, I love her and I love Christ. That's what we really expect to hear. Something about that, that's what's motivating him and driving him. But if he only says, well, of course, God commands us to be that way. That's just a little robotic and, and we, now, that doesn't mean his heart's not in it. Doesn't mean that. You have to be careful. We don't want to just jump to conclusions, but it does seem that way. Okay? It seems that way. So, even when it comes to our lives as Christians, sometimes when we obey God early in our relationship with God, it is that. Uh, well, so what the Bible says, I'm not doing it. So what the Bible says, I'm doing that. I'm, I mean, we just kind of like, I'm just, whatever the Bible tells me to do, I'm going to do it. What it says not to do, that's what I'm going to do. And that's okay. Nothing wrong with that, but as we grow as Christians, we may still have the same commitment, but I think it changes to where, yeah, God has commanded me to do that, but I also want to do that. Right? I I now want to. Why do I want to do that? I didn't want to do that before because your heart's changing. So I just. I, I the reason why I say that is because Christianity, to both Christians and non-Christians, can sometimes be uh, described. Really, in a very negative way, where it's just do, 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 kind of a thing. That's just that's just that's not helpful um, for us. So it's all these things combined. So some of us, because of our personalities, may respond better to the idea that God has commanded us certain things, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just that's how we are. Okay. At the same time, there'll be others who will respond better because. It's, people are, it's more about the relationship side. You know, because, because I love the Lord, because I know He loves me. All right? That, that type of thing. Or, imagine if then if I was to say to Ron, Ron, have you been faithful to your wife through all these years? And he says, well, of course, Jesus died for me. Okay, that's a true statement. Is that the only reason why you're faithful? It, we would still expect there to be more than that, Right? All right, so it's a, it's a correct answer, it's a good answer, but it's not an enough of an answer. It is overwhelming to a degree, because Christ did die for him. But remember that God did not say, because Christ died for you, you better do what I say. He does command us, but our relationship with Christ, our status with Christ, is not in jeopardy if we disobey. Thank goodness, because none of us obeys perfectly. Okay, so again, there's an expectation that we will obey. And there are blessings as well as not so much a blessing if we disobey. But we're not doing it because we're trying to pay God back. God never asks us to pay Him back for what He's done. We can never do it anyway. That is an impossibility. But that would also mean then that His love for us is conditional. As long as we're trying, He loves us. That's, that's not... That's not the biblical definition of love. That's not how he loves us. And I think as we think about it, we all will be very grateful for that. And when it comes to the relationship we have with those that we're very close to, we don't love them conditionally. We love them unconditionally. Because they, they, they will disappoint you. I've used this, this thing before when it comes to our kids. You do know that when your wife is pregnant with children, hopefully you have some understanding that when your children are born, even though you've given them life, and you're going to spend money on them, and you're going to feed them and care for them, that they are going to disappoint you, disobey you, and say no and, be, and the whole deal. So we don't say, so my wife and I, when she was pregnant with the first child, I, we didn't say, you know, what are we going to do when the firstborn disobeys us? And Cindy says, ungrateful? Throw them out. <laughs> we, that discussion never happens. Why? Because we both know, because of the sin nature, that's going to happen. We don't discuss that because our love for our child who isn't even born yet is not even conditional. He's our child. We're going to, whatever we have to do to deal with that, we're going to deal with that. But that's going to happen. And we don't say, okay, so since we know our kids are going to disappoint us, what happens? I mean, what are we going to do when they've disobeyed us for the 50th time? and Cindy says 50, when it's 40, they're out. Probably we don't do that, right? So, it, it's a, this, this whole thing with God, then, we need to recognize God's care and concern for us. It is love at the same time there's a demand that we live in a particular way, but at the same time there is His, his loving help, His graciousness that not only enables us to but gives us a strength we need to to grow in that area, to grow in that way. So if we avail ourselves of what God gives us, which really comes down to, again, the basics of Christianity, what is it that God gives to us that helps us to grow stronger uh, and to be able to keep our commitments to Him? It's going to be reading the Bible, worshiping with believers, fellowshipping with believers, spending time with God in prayer. It and it works, right? Because that's what God. Those are the means that God has ordained, uh, and and we in our body, our soul will respond to that, right? Just like uh, somebody, if a young man wants to get stronger, just so you know, it's the simplest thing in the world to do. Now it's hard work, but it's very simple. There's no magic and there's no secret. He needs to start. He can do what we call just basic lifts in weightlifting. And then what he needs to do is, as he gets stronger, make it heavier. And then you get stronger, and you make it heavier. And and then after a while, you add more. You just keep adding the weight. Now, there is a limit eventually, but that limit's pretty high up there. All right? And so their body, unless there's something wrong, will respond. It will. And they will get stronger. Some will get stronger than others, faster than others. Some going to take a while. There's all kinds of you know, things in there. But in the end, after one year, they'll be stronger than when they began. If they're not, then one thing you know for sure, they weren't working at it. Pretty simple. So when it comes to Christian life, it, it's, it's, a, it's a simple thing. Not easy, but it is simple. It's not rocket science, um, as they would say. All right, so for Paul... Even though he is in prison, he's wrongfully in prison, he's not getting an attitude, he's not demanding his rights, he's not, of course, you know, they don't, you know, sometimes they don't even know he's a a Roman citizen, they don't even know what's going on, because, you know, he kind of holds their feet to the fire a little, when he was in Philippi the first time, they all became pretty afraid when he said, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, why would you do this to me, and they freaked out, because you don't do the things they did to him if you're a Roman citizen. But the bottom line is, is, his only concern is to glorify Christ. And he wants to make sure he does nothing that is on to him. So that's when he, when he says, Christ will be honored my body. That would then, we could say, the pursuit of holiness. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. So we exalt Christ through our bodies. It's a comprehensive, practical concept. It means that we can exalt Christ or bring shame to his name by our attitudes, our words, or our behaviors. And so that's why there's simple questions we can ask. How do we use our eyes? How do we use our ears? All that kind of stuff. So then he says, going on, he talked, He uses the word honored, right? Well, Christ will be honored in my body. Some translations will say exalted. What does he mean there? It means to declare great. So I want. So he says Christ will be declared great in my body. That's what he wants. That's what he's trying. That's what he's going for. He wants others to glorify christ or see the exalted christ or see the greatness of god in his life that would be in his attitudes in his words in his actions that's kind of the idea all right so that's, that that takes us way beyond this idea where we sometimes think well all i know is i'm a christian and i need to and i need to do good things well you do but the good things you do need to be good things done in such a way people think about god which puts a whole lot of pressure on us, if you think about it. When I do good for someone, what am I doing that makes them think of God? Now, just to let you off the hook. <laughs> there's nothing you can do about that. Right? You can't do something that's so good. You don't. So let's say I'm helping Ron. I see him at Kroger, and he's got three bags of groceries. He's only got two arms. So I say, hey, Ron, let me help you. So I don't pick up the bag of groceries to say, Say, oh, I don't shout to anyone else. Yep, because, because of God's greatness, I'm doing this. I'm not of you to see this. It's only because of Christ that I'm helping him with his groceries. This old man can't carry three bags. Right? I'm not doing that. That would be absurd and obnoxious, right? That would be. All right? So we're supposed to be doing these good things, but if we're living this life that God wants us to, eventually, it's not that somebody recognizes it the first time, I just live my life that way then what one day somebody may ask you now this is what we have to make sure that you don't lie as a christian you don't intend to lie but you lie right this is how christians lie so lance says bob i'm gonna pick on you more ron i'm sorry even Lance says bob man you're always helping ron man how do you do that you don't ever get tired of doing that all right i should never say well you're not this is how i was raised you lying fibber. As I may have been raised to do good things, but that is, the glory does not go to my parents or to me. Alright? Because you can be raised that way and still not live that way. What I would say, I said, I said, Lance, I said, look, all I can tell you is, is that God just puts things in my heart and He He helps me to be, I don't even think about it. It's, it's because of what God's done in my life. All right? It's not false humility. I'm just telling them that's just why. I know that's why, because there's nothing good in me. I'm not a good guy. If God did not save me, what would I be? Now, I might be decent, but all of my decency would be relative. Relative to somebody else. Well, compared to so-and-so, Bob's a good guy. But we don't want to be that way. And so we don't want to tell people, oh, yeah, well, and, or say even this, well, I, I guess I was just born that way. What in the world? Yeah. You know, that's not how I was born. So we want to make sure that, so, so this idea that the pressure is on us, that when we do these things, we want God to be honored. Normally that would take place because that becomes our lifestyle. Right, so you can ask yourself, so if you, if you, if you do work outside the home, then generally speaking, how do other people see you? Like is your nickname when you're not around Mr. Grumpy Pants? Right? That's not a good thing. All right? Or are you Mr. Cynical? Or are you Mr. Narcissistic? Could be Mrs. Too, but you know, you're a narcissist. Right? If, that's, if that's how people think of us, then that's not exactly glorifying Christ. And you can still, you can still do good things, but a narcissist can do wonderful things because they want the glory and the honor and the credit. In fact, that's why they sometimes do that. That's why they want their names. On the wing of the hospital that they sent the money for, that's gonna have my name on there, kind of thing. So we just want, we, so we do want to make we do want to remember that, realize that even when it comes to doing good, that's, that's gosh, that's, that's way beyond me. So I man, I need the Lord's help in everything, and 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 we want His help, and He will. Even when it comes to the raising of our kids, you you want people to speak well of God because of the way you raise your kids. How does that happen? You know, people say, your kids are so so obedient. Yeah, well, they know they better not cross me. Okay, all right. You can be strict, but you can say, well, my my kids are good. That's because God is gracious. And we have tried to follow the word. We're not perfect, but even in that, God's been gracious to us, and we're grateful. Because there are, just so you know, there are people who have actually followed what the Bible said, and they did that part well, and their kids want nothing to do with God. You do know that's possible. That may not be the norm. I don't know what the percentages are. I don't know if anybody can do a, an accurate study on that. So you just throw that out the window. What we just need to realize is sometimes it may be true that someone's kids are just off the rails because mom and dad didn't do a very good job. It could be that mom and dad didn't get saved till late. And so the kids were raised by non-Christian parents. It could be a lot of things, but in the end, we know that when you go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you look at Cain and Abel, who were brothers, raised by the same parents, who were the exact opposite of each other. One was humble and loved God, the other was arrogant and wanted to argue with God. That's what you had. One wanted to obey God, which was Abel, the other one just said, well, I'll bring whatever I have. I mean, that's what you got. Same parents, same era, right? It just—it's the it's, so how's that it happen? It's, it's human beings are different. It's a sin nature, and so we want to make sure we keep all those things in perspective. It's a lot there, but it's not like you have to think about all those things and number them out every day. It's just that knowledge that we kind of absorb and we understand when it comes to our approach to life. So back again to this word honored. So Christ will be honored, or Christ will be declared to be great in my body. I'm trying to raise the status. Whatever people think about God, I want to raise their status or 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 give dignity and honor to God so, so that whatever their definition of God is, it changes. Right? We always want to we should to a degree want to challenge some people's view of God because they don't have a they don't have a good definition. All right? we want them to know that, that maybe that is different. Um, the literal uh, meaning of the word honored or exalted here is to physically enlarge. That's kind of the idea. So it's always that magnification kind of a thing that, uh, that's behind this word. The, the word can mean at times to show great mercy to someone or, or do him great kindness. So the idea is I'm doing a kindness to God. God doesn't need that, but I'm doing a kindness to God by living in such a way and trying to, to point out that he is great. That's kind of that's, Again, that's the relationship here in this word of what he's talking to. So again, in the end, the idea is to magnify or to praise um, the Lord. So going on to verses 21 through 24, we come to, there's, there's certain verses in the Bible that are really well known um, and very popular for a lot of different reasons. So we're going to come to at least a phrase that uh, many people are familiar with. So in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he goes on really to explain what he means. So we'll cover that in a minute. So we just want to look at this phrase: "For me to live as Christ and to die is gain." So this sums up very accurately Paul's uh, outlook on life. He he views everything in this in this manner. Um, I saw a you know sometimes people put these little I forget what they're called. It's, they're on Facebook and YouTube. You know these little. 30 second clips, it doesn't matter what they're called, but they do them, so, so this, Ah, oh, there that's one of them, real, um, so one time this lady gets on and she was just kind of reminiscing, not reminiscing, kind of, I, just talking about, about life, and uh, she says, you know, she goes, if you think about it, 50 years after you die, not very many people are going to be thinking about you. You're, you're going to be a, a fading memory to just a few people. The car you drive now won't even work anymore. It'll be in the junkyard somewhere. Most likely, for most of us, someone else will be living in our house. All your clothes are gone, and if someone has bought them on goodwill, they've, still, they've at least worn out by now. It's gone. The, the, the people in your own family that, that think about you, you're just a photograph on a wall, or in a book, or maybe on someone's phone. In 70 years, mm-hmm. unless you're unusual, no one may ever say your name again. There, there may not even be anyone alive. There'll be a few people alive that have a memory of you. But in 100 years, there'll be no one that has a memory of a real person-to-person memory of you. So she's going through all of that, which is it's kind of a startling thing to think about. You know, when we think about life and the finality of death, that's, she's really taking it down to a whole new level. Um, trying to make us feel just super empty and, and life is just, you know, and which is, but it's all true. So what we should be thinking about then is, so okay, so if all that is true, how am I not swallowed up in despair? In other words, then is there anything worth living for? If you think about it, right? What is my existence, if that's the truth? And physically and earthly, that is the truth. The only thing that's different for the Christian is Bob Dimmitt is going to be very much alive. I'm going to be living in the presence of Christ. And there is going to be a lot of people there who will know my name. And I will know their name. And I'm going to be busy living. And looking forward to the future. And my future will never not come to fruition it's gonna go on and go on because of the eternal life that Christ is and the life that He's given me. That's not the final picture. That's not the real or the full picture. So my life is worth living because it matters to God and I'm rewarded for what for what's going on now. Even though everyone on this earth they don't even know who I am anymore. So that helps us to boil down is what is the real value of life? What's the real meaning of life? What is it that gives us real substance and so, if you wash your car every weekend, that's good. Take care of stuff you own. But one day, you're not going to be there to wash it. It's not going to last. We can just go through all those things. It just, it just seems empty. And it can really depress you if you're not a believer. Um, it can even depress you if you are a believer. But uh, the idea is, is that there's more to just the here and now. It's more to that. But again, but at the same time, what we know, hopefully is that we're not saying that the physical is unimportant. Because some Christians go the wrong way. It's almost like, well, nothing you do here matters because we'll be in heaven forever. Time out? Not true. Okay, it's not true. We are going to go to what we call heaven when we die now. But we know that eventually there's a time coming when Christ returns to the earth, we come back with him, and this is where we live forever. It's here. Now, eventually there's a new heaven and new earth, so it's going to be very different than what we know. I think I've told you before, we're not quite sure as to the details. Does God then utterly destroy the earth and create a brand new earth? Or is the earth purified with fire and then he reforms it to the new heaven and new earth? Which one of those two, I don't know. That matter. It's a new earth. Either way you look at it. And it's going to be an earth that is unblemished by sin. Sin will not mar it at all. And when it comes to what this world is going to look like, All I can tell you is this, whatever pictures you have seen of the most beautiful places on the earth, remind yourself that what you're looking at is something that's been marred by sin. And I'm like, that is beautiful. So whatever the new heaven and new earth is going to be like, that that I'm looking at can't hold a candle to it. You can't even comprehend that kind of beauty because there's some things that are pretty phenomenal. You know, there's a. I have these. I have these weird photos on my computer. They're ones I picked. That's why they're weird. Um, but I, you know, I've got computers of like this this huge cloud that's been formed because of a volcano, and you take the photo at night, and there's this thing, this phenomenon where there's uh, lightning that takes place because of the ash. It's really cool, and some guys have kind of caught that with these time lapse cameras. It's really. I mean, it's. Even though it's very destructive, it's very beautiful. The black and the orange and then the lightning. It's just so cool. And there's different, you know, there's that one waterfall where the waterfall is so high that when the water falls down because of the wind, the water then begins to go back up. It's just really cool stuff, all right? And all that is just incredibly... And I grew up in Hawaii, which in case you didn't know, it's, it's a pretty place, all right? But it can't hold a candle because it's been marred by sin. And we're like... How is this marred by sin? But it is. So there's so much for us to look forward to um, as believers. So you come back then to what Paul said. This makes all the sense in the world. (coughs) Because this is the one thing that's eternal. All of eternity depends on this individual, Christ, the Messiah. So So he says in verse 21, he says, For to me to live. So what does he mean by for to me? It's a phrase where Paul is basically saying, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. That's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, look, I, I don't know where you're at on this, but this is where I'm at. Right? So he's letting them know what he's thinking. He's being very personal here. As far as he's concerned, this is the philosophy of life. This kind of goes back to what Joshua said when you go back to the Old Testament. Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So basically, you can, you can do whatever you want. You know we've laid out the issues, but as for me in my house, this is what we're doing. Amen. So this is what Paul's saying uh, here is that as far as he's concerned, this. So again, Paul is in prison. He is, and by the way, he knows that he may be executed. That, that's the possibility uh, of the outcome of his trial, which we actually know in the end is exactly what happened. Um, but he's facing the prospect of death at the hands of the Roman government. Um, Again, it is not true of all of us that in those dying times, we think about things that are the, you know, it is true that in these dying times, one normally thinks about the things that are most important in life. You've heard people sell these, tell these stories, a lot of uh, motivational speakers will, will kind of get into this a little bit, and they'll say stories like, well, when it comes to certain things that people say on their deathbed, there are certain phrases you never hear. So no matter how wealthy the guy is, what you never hear them saying is, you know, I wish I had made more money. They don't say that. You don't ever have anyone say on their deathbed, I should have spent more time at work. They don't say that. What do they say? If there's regrets that they're expressing, what they're saying is, I wish I had spent more time with. Whether it's the wife, it's a guy, with his wife, maybe with his mom and dad, with his kids. That's that's, what the, that's where the regrets are. I wish I had apologized. I wish I was more gracious to people. I wish I was, you know, that kind of thing. That's what people get into, whether they're believers or non-believers. That's the kind of regrets that they have. You know, it's not like I wish, oh man, I wish I had played at least two more rounds of golf. That just doesn't happen uh, at all. So Paul, again, knowing he's facing death, is basically expressing the most important things to him. When you read uh, 2 Peter, when, when Peter writes 2 Peter, Peter's old and he knows he's going to die. It was, he, he was told he was going to be executed. He was told that. He knows that. He knows his time is coming. And so he says in 2 Peter that um, even though he knows the people that he's writing to know what he's going to, already know the information he's going to give them, he's going to give it to them again because he sees it as being essential. So here he's peter's facing his, the death sentence he knows he's going to die soon his days are numbered and so what does he come out with what is the most important things so that's what paul's doing that's what peter did um and of course that's that's how we should be thinking and so we get this from from really deep in the heart of paul so it's not difficult for paul to explain what was of the utmost importance to him it's very simple And this is the phrase. So, again, we should ask ourselves this question, at least every now and then. What makes your life worth living? What is that? Is it your family, your work, your reputation? Now, I would say family is way high on the list, but it's not the ultimate. Because who gave us our family? Who made that even possible? Who created the idea of family? That would be God. Um... And uh, so when it comes to all of these things, it, it's Christ. So he says, so for, for to me to live, which is present tense, it's Christ. In fact, in the Greek language, uh, the phrase is just for me to live Christ. All right, he, he, that's, it's, it's worded that way. Uh, that's the literal rendering because there's no verbs for is in the Greek language. But that actually makes the statement to those who are experts in language much more dramatic. So the present tense then can be paraphrased this way. For to me, to go on living. So it's the process of life. It's not, you know, it's not just a principle of life. It's the process of life. So Paul had no thought of life apart from Christ. And so we see in a nutshell, Paul's chief end for living. So think of it this way. So sometimes when people get very old, they stop going to church. So we're boiling down to two main reasons they stop going to church. If that's what happens for some they stop going to church because they literally they can't go you know they're an invalid you know that kind of thing so and we understand that but there's also another large segment of people when they get old they stop going and they may say well it's too hard but if your life is about christ then there's no such thing as that that doesn't exist Right, we're we're going to do what we have to do to obey God in the simple ways that we can. So if that means it takes you two hours to get ready, then you take two hours. That's that's all it means. It's not that not that big of a deal. Um, That's why sometimes you know if you're ever going to miss church, be careful. Don't tell me your reason because I might think it's lame and I might say it. You know, like some people will say this. You know, I didn't get much sleep last night okay i don't understand uh, yeah, it's, i couldn't make it to church I, I don't understand if you didn't get much sleep last night you had to work today would you go to work most people now i know it's starting to change now in the work world but most people say well of course i would you got to do that so the obligation we have to christ it's not that i got to do that but i want to got to do that, that that's kind of what it is I, I i don't i can't think of my life Apart from that, I don't want my life to be apart from that. To me, that would be just really strange and lonely to to live my life that way. So this is what Paul is talking about here is that it's again, it's 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 a it's not just this principle. It's the process of living. It's the way we live. And so Paul had no thought of living his life apart from Christ. Um, He wasn't living for money or fame or pleasure. It was the person and purpose of Jesus Christ. Uh, the person and purpose of Christ is, there's a phrase that's used in some old books, it's called the warp and woof of Paul's life. It's the sum total of his reason for existence, all of Paul's activities and interest. His entire existence was, with, was within the sphere of Christ. So in, again, for him and through him and to him are all things. So I did want to give you a definition of warp and woof in case you ever came across it, because I had no idea where it came from. I've known what it meant for a long time. It's kind of like the beginning and the end, but I, I don't know where it came from. So, basically, warp and woof is the essential foundation or base of any structure or organization. It is a term that comes from weaving, in which the warp, which is the threads that run lengthwise, and the woof, which the threads that run across, make up the fabric. So, people would say this in the secular world, about our country, even though it's changing, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are the warp and woof of the American nation. And that's still true. I mean, it's, people are trying to change that, but I mean, that's, that's basically true. So that's where that comes from. It comes from, from, uh, uh, from weaving. And since none of us here are weaving, that I know of, uh, you might not have known that. So I just thought it was interesting, but, but that's kind of where that phrase, so when you come across that phrase, you'll now know what that is, And you can use it in a trivial game to ask somebody the question, and they won't know the answer, and you will win. Um, So that's always good. So when he says he wants to live for Christ, so then what specifically does he mean by that? What does it mean to live for Christ? Well, let's put it this way. Number one, to to, to, to live Christ means to live in union with Christ. Now, the reason why I'm saying that first is because we sometimes might think, well, of course, living for Christ is you're living in obedience. That's true, but it's not, it's, it's, that's not the essence of that. Okay? Again, when, so when it comes to being married, all right? So, for me to live as a married man, okay, my first response should be, if someone asks, what does that mean to me? The idea is that, that, I am living for my wife and this life we've created together. We want to experience life together. So you know that's that's the idea of growing old together. And we are now there. We're old, and we're still together. That's a good thing. And we're not going to get even older together. All right, but that's the idea. Okay. I don't just say, well, I'm a married man. What does that mean to you, Bob? "Ah, That means I can't look at other women. You say what? That, how shallow does that sound? That, so your whole married life is summed up in, you can't look at other women? No. That, that's a small segment, important, but it's a small segment. No, it's, it's, it's more than that. That can't be it. It has to be us. It has to be the, the family we have together. Right? It has to be that. The life we've created together. Good, bad, and ugly. All of it. The whole thing. Right? That's what it is. And, and looking forward to more of that. So when it comes to this relation we have with Christ, what does it mean to live? For me to live is Christ. is that union that we have with Christ, this relationship that we have with God, one that the world's not going to understand, and it's okay. Don't worry about them understanding it. It's what we have with Him. Well, we actually will say and think, God speaks to me, I speak to God. Because we're Baptists, we hope, we, hopefully you know this, it's not that we're hearing audibly from God. He's not talking to us like that. We know he talks to us from the word, talks to us through the word. We talk to God, and and we have this actual relationship. God understands me, not only because he created me, but he understands me as an individual. Bob, he he knows all the weird and bad stuff about me, and still loves me. He knows everything about me. He knows what I'm capable of doing. He knows what I'm not capable of doing. He he understands all of that, right? Because he's, he's not just my God at a distance. He is close to us as well. The Bible also says that that Christ is my brother. Trying to emphasize this this intimacy and this relationship we have. So the concept of being in Christ, and uh, it used to be a popular theme in Bible studies in the 70s and 80s where there were a lot of books written about being in Christ or our union with Christ. Um, It's kind of fallen by the wayside. It's not forgotten, but you know, there's different phases that Christianity kind of goes through as to what's viewed as being important. Uh, sometimes it's because of what's, what's going on as far as how we are being attacked. How is Christianity being diminished? There's all kinds of things that are in that. But it's one of those things that does need to resurface from time to time because it is essential and vital to our flourishing as believers is this union that we have with Christ, uh, this very much this togetherness that we have with Him. And so... Uh, what Paul writes about. There's a lot of that that phrase, being in Christ. It it appears all over the New Testament. Um, When Paul uh, addressed this letter, he said, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. So the thing is this, the instant a person truly believes in Jesus Christ as Savior, he is joined organically in a living, real union with Christ, the head, as a member of his body, the church so back again to the whole church thing so you and i come in the church it's not just church attendance that's the thing all right that's that's how the, our love for the church is manifested and of course we're commanded to do that but there's also this relationship we have with each other recognizing that the church is the body of christ so we're members of the body and so each person then is essential to the body uh, that's why we want to emphasize all the things that we emphasize, which also includes fellowship with each other, being, being with each other, being friends. We're not going to be super close to everyone. That's, that's a human impossibility. Right? But there's some that we're more, we, there are some that we are more naturally closer to than others, and that even may change. Mm-hmm. But it's all part of being together as a family, and this unity that we have because of Christ. And so uh, when we then become a believer, you are now, whether you feel it or not, doesn't matter. You are a very real member of the body of Christ. We are, in a sense, then obligated. I was reading a book once, and I looked at a couple um, YouTube uh, tapes on the history of the Masons. It's not a good thing, but anyway. Um, so when it came to the Masons, one of the things they had going on, you know, it's supposed to be the secret society, which it kind of is, and they have all these different oaths they take, which is very problematic, and they have secret handshakes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but one, one of the, the uh, aspects of being a, a Mason is there's a loyalty to each other. Uh, a commitment to keep secrets, which can be a bad thing. Um, it's almost like a good old boy network. I won't tell about your sins, you don't tell about mine. So kind that's where it goes. But anyway, but there's this really high level of commitment to the point that um, you, the way that it's supposed to work is you would lie for each other. So then let's say that you have firsthand knowledge that a fellow mason is cheating on his wife <coughs> she hears the rumors about it she knows if anyone knows about it it's you and you she comes to you and says just tell me the truth i don't want the details but is is my man is my husband is he unfaithful and you would be required as a member of the society to look her right in the eye and say, absolutely not, he's faithful. Right? Because the, the, you, the relationship you have with your, with your fellow Masonic member is the priority. And that's, you know, of course, you can tell there's not a whole lot of ethic in that, even though they say there is, but that's kind of how that works. All right, so you're, you're included and there's these expectations that you have. So if a Mason came to you who was in trouble, you are obligated to help them. You know, that kind of thing. Um, now, I'm not saying we want to follow the model because I don't think we should. It's a very bad one. But the idea with that is that we then have an obligation to each other as believers. So then, all right, so if Lance comes to me and he has a very real need, now I, now I do this. I ask a lot of questions because I want to make sure everything is upright the way it should be. But let's say I ask the questions and He's got a legitimate need. It's not because of sin. He's got a need. I am obligated, as a Christian, I'm obligated to God to help him because he's my brother. Now, I may not have all the means necessary, but I'm still part of that solution. I may have to get some other guys to help me, whatever that may happen to be, but there's a, there is an obligation, that kind of obligation. It, it, now, that... That, that does not mean that I would ever lie for him. That would be wrong. We, we follow what the Scripture says. Right, even if he asked me to lie for him, I'm not doing that. We don't, we don't do that as Christians. Right? So there's no conflict, there or contradiction. But there is this. But it's family. So in the same way, that if one of my sisters, if one of my sisters called me, and she was in trouble, and that meant I had to hop in the truck and drive 500 miles because that's where she lives. To help her, there's no thinking about that. That has to be done. If Cindy's brother calls her, and we determine from his conversation that he's there's real trouble, we need to get there. That's a, that's a 12-hour drive. No, 17. 17. Thank you. It's even worse. <laughs> All right. So boy, it better be. He better need us. No. But the idea is. So there's no thinking about it really. And besides, how are we going to do this? But there should be, there's a sense of familial obligation to help him because that's my brother-in-law, that's her brother, right? So it's Christians, and that's what the local church is for, because we know I can't be obligated in that way to this Russian Christian I've never met before who still lives in Russia. I, we're, that's beyond our means. But every local church has an obligation to its members. That's why we have membership, right? Because so, when people need help... It's, I always tell people on the phone, because people call all the time for help from a church, I say, well, number one, we help our members first. Period. That's who we help first. So, if, if we're in the middle of helping some people, then we don't have money to help you, I have no problem saying we're not helping you. Sometimes that shocks people, but I just say it, we're not helping you. Right? So that's why that's important, because there's an, there is an obligation with that. Okay? So I'm obligated to my brother to do that. that that's what he's taught. That, that's the essence of what we are uh, as believers. We're related because of Christ. Because of Christ in me and Christ in him. To live for Christ means that. Um, and that's how that's, in a sense, played out. So also, what it means to be in Christ is this. To be in Christ means that all that is true of Christ is true of the believer. So let me read to you from Romans, and then we'll have to just stop and talk more about it next week. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. For the death that he died, that's speaking of Christ. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the idea is, for the death he died, he died to sin. For the death he died, I died to sin once for all. For the life that he lives, therefore now the life that I live, he lives to God. I live to God. So I, and because that's true, this identity with Christ is true, he is dead to sin, I am dead to sin. And that means I'm dead to the power of sin. So remember now what that means is, it doesn't mean that you and I will never sin again, we will. The bad news is this, no matter what you think, whenever you and I sin, you always sin. On purpose. I know that that's not popular. People who go to psychologists they don't like that either. But that's what the Bible says. Because I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to it. The only way uh, the only way I can be enticed is because of the desires of what my own heart. Nobody can make me sin. They can't do it. It is impossible. I think I mentioned it before that if somebody says, "Well, Bob, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you." And some people say, well, there's no choice there. Yeah, there is. I, I trust God. I don't think this is how I'm going to die, but, you know, I may be afraid. I don't want to die. I mean, I'm not afraid of death, but I don't want to die. I'm not in a hurry. I like being alive. It's a good thing. Right? But there's choice there. So now, it, I'm not saying we're all there right now. But Here's the good news. In fact, it's even possible that all of us could be thinking at the exact same time, man, I don't know if I could do that. If someone's holding a gun in my head and says, if I don't do something, they're going to kill me. I don't know if I can make the right choice because I don't think I'm strong enough. It's very possible you are not strong enough now. But at the moment that happens, God has promised us he would never leave us, never forsake us. And the grace that we need, he will give us. That's his strength that we need. So he's not going to give you strength to face a handgun now but you will have the grace you need if and when that happens and there's tons of evidence from believers going all the way back to when they were being fed to the lions in rome uh, all the way up to today to believers that are incarcerated in other countries because they're christians i mean it's phenomenal uh, that doesn't mean that everybody does great at that it doesn't mean there's some people who blow up because their fear overcome that can ha- we're human beings that happens but generally speaking that's the truth. And God will give us the grace we need. So it doesn't even, you don't have to answer that question now. Will you be strong enough at that moment? God will never let He won't fail you. And I'm convinced that God will give us the strength we need. Thank goodness. Because uh, I'm pretty sure right now at this very moment, I don't know if I have the strength to do that. But I will. Because he's the one who gives it to me, which I just think is fabulous. But we will... Um, Talk more about that next week and move on and uh, make sure that we have a really good handle on what it means to live for Christ and what it means to be in Christ and how that kind of comes together in our lives as believers. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. We thank you, Father, for uh, Paul's letter. We thank you, Father, for the rich meaning behind the words and phrases that he uses. I pray, Lord, that this passage here, verse 21, will ring in our hearts and minds for many days to come as we just kind of contemplate what he said there, which was, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize the greatness of that statement and the joy in that statement and the comfort that's in that statement. And I pray, Lord, that you will enable us all to be able to proclaim that as truly being our view of life, even though we know, Lord, that if it was dependent upon us and our strength alone, we would not be able to live that out. But you've not asked us to do that, and we're grateful for that. So, Father, I ask now that you would dismiss us in your kindness and grace and watch over us and keep us safe. Use us as you see fit until we are allowed to come back together again Sunday to worship you together and to encourage each other. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.